Peace be with you. What do we really know about the historical uh, Jesus, and how does that impact our faith and our lives uh, today? So just before uh, the holidays, a colleague of mine, John Thompson, posted some pictures uh, on the internet, and I shared them, so some of you may have seen them, of the Holy Family, so Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, kind of from the Nativity, and they had done this from different parts of the world, so different places and cultures around the world. So I wanted to share a few of them with you. Uh, Here's the first one. Uh, so this is, uh, this is Mary and, G- and Jesus. Uh, really, yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful picture. I don't know, if, is that Mandarin, the writing? I'm not, I'm not totally sure. So that's beautiful. Look at the, the beautiful robes and the colors next. Uh, the next one, so when I posted that, a friend of mine uh, from Korea uh, said, here's one from a Korean artist. And so you'll notice, again, this is a nativity scene. Sorry, back, a nativity scene. And so you can see the, the, you know, the clothes and everything, and they're, they're there, and there's the baby Jesus. Here's the next one, and so this one is from uh, Africa, and so there's Mary and, and, and Jesus. And so one of the things you notice in, in artwork about Jesus through the ages is that people tend to depict Jesus in terms of how he looks based on how they themselves look. And there's nothing wrong with that because we relate to him, but it got me thinking about the whole thing, about what, what do we actually know about the historical Jesus? What, what did he really look like? Or uh, not just that, but about his life. What was it like? growing up in the small village of Nazareth or under the tyrannical rule of the Romans or uh, of the emperor, uh, sorry, of, uh, of, of King Herod, these sorts of, of things. And so that's what we're going to explore today. What, what do we know about the actual historical Jesus? And so we're going to look at that. This week is a bit of a detour from our journey through the Gospel of John. And so we're going to return to that next week. And I'm really excited about that because it's, it's a powerful passage about Jesus teaching us about the Holy Spirit. And so that's going to be next week. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do uh, in our lives? But this week, this is the question we're going to explore. And it's not just random. There's a purpose to it. And the purpose is this. The more we know about his life then, the more we appreciate the impact on his life now. Okay? So the more that we know about his life then, the more we appreciate the impact on his life on us uh, now. Now, I just want to put a large footnote to this whole discussion, okay? So when some people talk about, okay, we're going to really uncover and unpack who, who the historical Jesus is, uh, if you see this on a TV show uh, sometimes or maybe in a magazine article or a blog post or a podcast, if it's kind of from a secular perspective when they say that, what they mean is that, well, we can't really trust what the Bible says about Jesus or we don't believe in the miraculous. Therefore, we're going we're gonna to put all that kind of information aside and we're going we're gonna to do some research and find out who Jesus really was despite what the Bible says. This is not that. Okay, so clearly we know the Bible, uh, Gospels, these are accurate historical records as we always uh, talk about. Uh, But what this is, is we're going to look at some historical, cultural, archaeological discoveries that help us kind of provide some kind of rich context and background to help bring some of these stories about Jesus to life for us. And so the idea is we're going to look at his, his humanness, what some of his human experience in this world would have looked like. Then at the end, we're going to come back to the, to the big picture, and we're going to talk about the significance of that and how it, how it relates to our faith today and how it impacts our faith uh, today. So that's kind of our trajectory. So uh, first, the consensus of non-Christian historians. So it's helpful when we look at who Jesus was. You know, we're going to look at some specifics about him. But also, there's actually a group of people who study the historical Jesus who, and, and who aren't necessarily Christians, uh, but there's some kind of general agreed-upon facts, even just from a secular perspective, and it's interesting for us to know what they are. And the first, that Jesus is a teacher of wisdom. 
right? He teaches, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies. So he's a teacher of wisdom. We know that. Uh, it's also widely acknowledged that he was a wonder worker and a healer, right? So even if someone comes at this historically and doesn't share the Christian faith, uh, you can't deny that other people were in fact coming to him because he was performing all sorts of things, or at least they, they were saying he was performing these things. And a healer. And one of the interesting things about a healer that makes Jesus stand apart is that he didn't charge people money for it, whereas sometimes that did happen in the ancient world. So he was just kingdom of God, you know, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. He's bringing the kingdom. He's teaching. He's doing all these things. He's not charging for it. Now, the third thing is he's an exorcist. So as you go through the gospel stories, as you hear people flocking to him, one of the major categories of why the people find Jesus so compelling is he, is he is exercising demons. He is able to cast out evil and demonic and unclean spirits from people. And so if even if people historically think, okay, I might struggle with that, or maybe I don't, I'm not a Christian, and I don't, that sounds kind of crazy to me, you can't deny that one of the reasons people are coming to him is for that. The fourth major category is that Jesus, how he died. So he was crucified. Uh, in the early first century, outside the holy city of Jerusalem by the Romans. And uh, because of historical documents, we know about crucifixion. It was a public shaming ritual. It was horrible. Uh, it was meant to be very public so that people would be dissuaded from uh, being some sort of perceived threat to the Roman Empire. Uh, it involved torture. It involved flaying or flogging, which is the peeling of skin from parts of the body in cases horrific and then nailed to the cross. And so those are some of the kind of the water consensus details from um, non-Christian sources. But let's look into his looks. So general looks, there's not a single description uh, in the Bible about what Jesus looks like, which is really interesting because he's the most historically documented figure in human history and that there's no really description of what he looked like. The only actual description is kind of like a non-description. So in the book of the prophet Isaiah, written approximately like 800 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, about the coming Messiah, in chapter 53, verse 2, it says this, He had no beauty to attract us to him. So basically, like people are flocking to him not because of uh, what he looked like, but because of what he was saying and what he was doing. And so we can assume from that that his looks are... Average. Now, height and weight, thinking through height and weight, we weren't there, we don't know. How do you get those sorts of details? Well, archaeologists have actually excavated skeletal remains, not Jesus, obviously, but other skeletal remains from that time in history, from that part of the world. And based on you know, reconstructing these skeletal remains, you can get the average of kind of what people, what size people were at the time. The average man, that part of the world, that time in history, was five foot three. 132 pounds, which is pretty interesting. Five foot three, different kind of life, different lifestyle, different diet, a variety of factors, but I found it interesting. So I'm 5'9", uh, 185 pounds. Before December, I was about 180. So, you know, Christmas, Advent, uh, Tom's bringing in cookies all the time. Uh, so, you know, hopefully I get back. <laughs> anyway, but I'm like, 5'9", 185, I'm, I'm maybe average kind of size. I'm not really small, I'm not, I'm not big. But Jesus would be visibly smaller than me. By the way, interesting side note, uh, the average woman in that time, 4'9", 99 pounds. 99 pounds, interesting. Okay, so things are, thing, you know, different, a whole variety of reasons. Skin color, hair, clothes. Well, his skin color would have been darker, much darker than what we usually see depicted here in North America. 
Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, according to traditional Jewish convention, he most likely had a light beard, so short, uh, not heavy, so not long, but short. And he would have had dark, uh, curly hair, uh, very dark, almost black, uh, curly hair. In all likelihood, he had the habit of wearing traditional Jewish clothing. So the robes that we see uh, depicted in pictures would have been, uh, would have been fairly accurate. Uh, in two references in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that there's tassels on the bottom of his garment. Now, is that to look fancy? No. It's because in the Old Testament, it says that adult Jewish males will have these tassels on them to show that they are devout and that they belong to the God of Israel. So he's wearing clothes that will visually say to people that he is a Jewish man who is devoted to the God of Israel. Uh, clothes were very practical. You had to be moving around to be able to work in them. People didn't have the kind of wardrobes that we do uh, now. Uh, also that modest, the clothes were modest. So your, your whole body is covered. The body doesn't belong to us primarily. It belongs to God. And so that is for the modesty in both men and women. And uh, also no one really is to see your body until your spouse uh, when and if you are uh, married. Now, in 2001, a forensic anthropologist named Richard Neve created a model of a head of a man from Galilee, which is where Jesus was from. Now, he's constructed this based on what we know, the time, looks, etc., but based on the structure of this skull. So this isn't Jesus necessarily, but it's supposed to be like an average Galilean man um, from that part of the world. And so it's called Galilean man. We'll just put it up here. Here's the picture. Now, so it's interesting. So this, this look, again, of a, of a kind of an average man, uh, this part of the world, this time in history, uh, based on this archaeological reconstruction, based on what they have found, it's interesting. It matches what we said about hair and beard, etc. And the reason I think it's interesting to look at is because this is probably much more uh, close uh, to what Jesus would have looked like than many of the pictures that most of us are used to seeing, which quite often reflect uh, our, own, our own kind of cultures, whatever, uh, whatever they happen to be. Okay, so early years. So as we know, Jesus was from Bethlehem, and then he is, uh, he's warned not to go back uh, to see Herod uh, by the angel, right? Because Herod is this tyrannical ruler. Herod says, I want to worship the newborn king, but really we know that Herod is just, you know, acting out of his own self-interest, and so, you know, later he will slaughter all the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem, right? He is so concerned with keeping his own reign, and the Messiah is a kingly figure. God's uh, representative on the earth, and so he's threatened by this, so they flee as refugees. So Mary and Joseph spend the early part of the years for Jesus. They flee as refugees down to Egypt before they go up to Nazareth, okay? So but before we get into what living in Nazareth might have been like, let me share a few things about how dangerous the world was. And this is uh, the world into which Jesus was born. So first of all, uh, there's the danger of Mary being pregnant. Right, so they're, they're betrothed or they're engaged, so Mary and Joseph. Um, the, although betrothal at that time was legally the equivalent to marriage. And so even though the marriage has not been consummated yet and fully recognized. So if it could be proven that Mary was, was not faithful to Joseph and that's why she was pregnant, under the law she could have been stoned to death. So it's a very dangerous situation. So not only is there that, they're traveling to his ancestral town, which is Bethlehem, about 140 clicks from Nazareth, on foot, which is very dangerous, right? They're, they're not traveling in a caravan, as far as we know. They're going there, and there's marauding bands of raiders in the foothills. Like, it's a very dangerous situation. They get there. Mary has the child. The number one cause of premature death in women in that day was childbirth. 
So it's, so it's amazing. So it's good you know, that, that, that she even survives, right? Uh, by the way, also interesting side, side note, um, half the population had died by the time they were 30 in that day and age. So think of, think of when you're about that age, all the people you knew, over 50% of them would have died. So life was difficult, life was dangerous. I also want to highlight the danger about living under King Herod. Now, there's some of the bloody details about King Herod, as I've just said, you know, recorded in the New Testament itself. But there's other historical records about his reign and his rule, which tells us how difficult and dangerous this would have been. And, and the terror and fear of living in the time of Herod would have spread over so many people, okay? So here's a few of the details, and I thank uh, my former professor of Old Testament, Brian Irwin, who shared this summary with me. Get this. So Herod had at least five wives, which was not uncommon. He drowned his brother-in-law, Aristobulus III. He executed the husband of his sister, Salome. He lopped off the head of his wife's grandpa, Hyrcanus II. He murdered uh, his own wife, one of his own wives, Mariamne, the next year. He executed his mother-in-law. Um, you think you got mother-in-law issues? No. Um, he killed the second husband of his sister Salome. His name is Costabar. Strangled two of his own sons by Mariamne. He executed a sword of the Pharisees. He also executed his oldest son five days before he himself died. This is all in an attempt to keep on to his own reign and rule. Wow. You think some of our political leaders today have issues? Herod. Okay, so Nazareth, after spending time in Egypt as refugees, they go back to spend Jesus' early years in Nazareth. Now, think of the town you grew up in. So uh, the towns that we grew up in really, really have an impact on our minds. Psychologists say that our personalities are fundamentally shaped by the time we are six. So we grow and develop and have different experiences, but our, our, our personalities are fundamentally shaped by the time uh, we're six. So Jesus, his context was at least the latter part of those six years, was of a very small village called Nazareth. And, and scholars speculate that there could have been between one and th 400 people. This is a small hamlet. There's no evidence, even archaeologically, of it ever having you know, a paved street in the first century. So this is small. Everybody knows your name in Nazareth. Um, uh, but we are told in Luke 4, however, that it was big enough to have a, um, was big enough to have a, um, a synagogue. Now, interesting historical side note, archaeologists recently published findings, so this is new, so you maybe haven't heard of this, uh, which suggests that the house that Jesus grew up in may have been discovered, uh, may have been a sort of cave on the side of the hill. So I'm going to put up here a, a picture, and this is an artist's recreation of Nazareth. Now, it's a bit distant and blurry, so go with me here from the first century, uh, Balage below. So what, what, he, what he's done is... Down in the valley there, you see some dwellings, and then also some dwellings are built up on the side, and sometimes gardens are built up on the side. So that's kind of the By the way, Nazareth, you can visit it. There's over 80,000 people who live there today. But this is like kind of that picture from way back then. And, um, and so here, here's why they think they may have found Jesus' boyhood home, keeping in mind that nothing historically significant has ever come out of Nazareth. It doesn't appear in a lot of historical records. The only kind of historically significant thing is that Jesus was raised there. Okay, so keep that. So in the early centuries, there was a convent built on a very specific location on the side of a hill. Shortly thereafter, a church is built on the site of that convent. Now, what does that matter? It matters because that was the custom about how you preserve sacred sites. 
that so you could worship there, so you could protect it from being damaged by anything else. And so if there's nothing other historically significant that has come out of Nazareth, wouldn't the most likely scenario is that people in those early centuries identified that something special had happened there. They had built this convent over which a church was built. We can't say for sure, but it's an interesting theory, perhaps. Now, his language, his language was King James English. No, just joking. Um, (laughs) He spoke Aramaic, which was a language very closely related to Hebrew, and so the name Jesus was Yeshua. So his mother and siblings would have called him Yeshua. Yeshua, pick that tablet up off the floor and plug it in for the last time. Um, Actually, they would have had tablets, different tablets, but anyway, tablets... (laughs) Tablets, nevertheless. Yeshua, no, Jesus, very, very good child, of course. So his name is uh, Yeshua. Mary and Jesus' siblings, as per the custom of the day, and we talked about this on Christmas, Mary probably 14 or 15 when she had Jesus, so quite young. Um, but it's interesting if you do the math. So Mary and Joseph, after Jesus, had other siblings, so the New Testament talks about uh, brothers and sisters, and so even if it was a small place in, in the little hamlet of Nazareth, would have been a full house, um, but... Would have been a lot of people around, but if you do the math, so let's say Mary is 15 when she has Jesus, and Jesus starts his public ministry as an adult when he's 30, the ministry lasts three years, and so as he's hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying for us all, Mary's standing at the foot of the cross watching, and she is 48, which is interesting to kind of put those together. That's not, it's not very old, especially by today's standards. Now, Joseph, an early profession. Now, uh, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, we could call him an adoptive father, really, or a caretaker, worked with his hands as a carpenter. And so do the math. If Nazareth was only like 100 to 400 people, that's not very many households to sustain this kind of business. And so what was more likely is that Joseph would have gone to the nearby towns, whether Capernaum, Sephora, these places, to drum up business. Or he could have had some other business at the side. But as per the custom, you know, the oldest, Jesus, most likely would have traveled with Joseph to these various places, right, to apprentice under him to learn these things. Now, he wouldn't take on that family business in that sense, at least not after he was 30, because he was engaged in public ministry. But that gives us a bit of a flavor of what would have gone on. Education. Jesus would have received the standard education for Jewish boys at the time, uh, at least up to the age of 12. In the synagogue, he would have been learning to read um, and, and write, and this is primarily so that he could read the, uh, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. We do know that Jesus was advanced in his learning um, as, as a human boy, and the only story we have from Jesus' uh, boyhood, of course, is when he goes to the temple. Right, and the family's going for the pilgrimage festival to Jerusalem, and they find Jerusalem, find Jesus in the temple, and he's there sitting among the religious leaders, and, and they are astonished at his learning. So that we know that as he's been learning, he is clearly kind of uh, rising above his peers. And he is single. Single. Okay. Now I want to pause on this because um, some people today forget this, and I think it's important because people can venerate to the point of idolatry being married and having a family. And it's unhealthy. Family's the most important thing. The kids are the most important thing. They're not. Family's not the most important thing. Kids are not the most important thing. God is the most important thing. Loving him, knowing him, serving him, following him as the hands and feet of Jesus. That's the most important thing. And so if you're married and you have kids, that's great. Do it for the glory of God. If you're single, that's great. Do it for the glory of God. One is not set higher than the other. And so think about it. Jesus was single. Jesus never married. Jesus never had sex. Jesus never had biological children. Jesus was not any less 
because of that. Jesus was not any less because he was single. He was not any less because he never experienced sexual intimacy. He was never less because he never had biological children. And we just need to pause on that for a moment. Okay, religion and customs. We cannot underestimate the role that God and religion played in Jesus' earthly life, of course. Right? And we're thinking of his life from a kind of the human experiential perspective. And so he would have said morning and evening prayers, as all devout Jews would have done, and also in other parts of the day as well. He was saturated with the Bible, going to synagogue, reading the scriptures. As Jesus, we learn about him in the New Testament, we find that he talks about the Old Testament as the word of God. He calls this the commands of God all the time. Even when he grows up and he's in debates with people, and there's some sort of issue that's being discussed, what does he say? He says, as it is written which is the ancient equivalent of the Bible says, which is very interesting. Um, by the way, of all the, past, all the books, see if you can guess the answer. Of all the books that Jesus quotes in the Old Testament, guess which book he quotes the most? Just yell out a guess. Isaiah. Isaiah Daniel. Daniel. The Psalms. Someone said the Psalms. That's right. Uh, the Psalms are very powerful. Also, the songs, Psalms are being sung in, the, in synagogue worship, which he went to, uh, which we would have gone to every week. Now, it's interesting. Here's a picture of a synagogue uh, that was um, um, excavated from the 4th century. This is from Craig Evans, Jesus and His World. Uh, Craig Evans is a, he's a great, great scholar. He's a Canadian. Anyway, so what you'll notice is that, that that's the wall of this synagogue in Capernaum. Now, what's, what's significant about Capernaum is that in Jesus' adult ministry, when he's going... Capernaum is like his ministry center. It's a strategic location. They're always coming in and out of Capernaum. And, and this is dated to the 4th century. Now, I put an arrow there to that dark thing on the bottom. So that's a lower wall. So here's the historical significance of that. So it was the custom to build synagogues on the foundations of older synagogues. And so that dark part of the bottom, that's an older synagogue which dates to the 1st century B.C., Meaning that when Jesus and his disciples are in synagogue and they, go to, and they go to worship, that's the exact location where they went. It's so amazing that we, we can see these places, that these, these exist uh, today. Okay, so let me just summarize some of these things. Jesus was born into a dangerous situation, including the tyrannical rule of King Herod. He was born under Roman oppression. He fled as a refugee with Mary and Joseph to Egypt. He was raised in a small village, maybe a hamlet named Nazareth, perhaps between one and 400 people. His home may have been a sort of cave on the side of a hill. He received standard education for boys, being encouraged especially to read. He spoke Aramaic. His mother would have called him Yeshua. He most likely apprenticed under Joseph as a carpenter, traveling to various towns for work. He lived the life of a devout Jew, saying morning and evening prayers, going to synagogue to worship and learn the word of God every week, traveling to Jerusalem for annual pilgrimage festivals with his family, at least with Joseph. Joseph most likely died before Jesus did. His looks were normal. He was probably around 5'3 and 132 pounds. His skin would have been darker than we're used to seeing, with a beard and dark hair, almost black. He wore traditional, modest, Jewish clothing, he was single. So at the start of this, I said that the more we know about his life then, the more we appreciate the impact of his life on us now. And so this is where we need to kind of get back to the big picture. I've been sharing with us some of the lesser known details maybe about his human life, but as we think through the significance, we need to remember that yes, he is fully human, but he's also fully divine. 
And we need to keep these two realities in our hands and in our minds at the same time if we are truly to appreciate the significance. So consider uh, two of these passages, and I'll lift them up there on the screen. So the first is Hebrews 1, okay? We studied Hebrews last year. This is what it says, okay? This is, this is Jesus we're talking about. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers meaning our spiritual ancestors, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Through Jesus, he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, right, atoning for, dying for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this Jesus of Nazareth, this Yeshua, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Again, we got to keep these things in balance. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things Hold together. And by the way, these things, of course, as we get into the Gospels, these things are consistent with the teachings of Jesus himself. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Not some of the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. All of the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is, you know, a reference to born to die that we might live. He comes to, comes to, to help and heal and save us and give us that eternal peace with God. So, so this Jesus of Nazareth, this Yeshua, is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God dwells in him. So what we need to ask ourselves is this. If Jesus is, if Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word, Hebrews 1, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him, Colossians 1, why on earth would he come to earth? Why would he endure it? Why not just stay at the side of his heavenly father? Why endure all this mess and this chaos? Right? Why, be, why come and be born in a stinky manger? Why be born under harsh Roman oppression? Why come in the time of King Herod, this despot? Why, why at a time when he had with, with Mary and Joseph to flee as a refugee in danger to, to Egypt and then go to this backwater town, Nazareth, eking out a meager living with his hands and as he grows and starts teaching and spat upon and ridiculed and mocked and everything, why would he do all that? Well, he did it because he loves you. That's why. A God who gets involved personally is a God 
who cares passionately, and you know it's true. Let's say you're in a tight spot. You're having a really difficult situation in your life, and you explain this to someone, and that person, they don't respond. They don't show up. They could care less. Well, that, they don't probably really care. Maybe not in a close, passionate way. Maybe they're an acquaintance. But you tell someone you're in a situation, and they say, hey, you know what? I'm going to come over Saturday morning, and I'm going to help. And they show up personally, hey, you know what? I know it's been a tough couple months. I'm going to take you. We're going to go for a weekend away out of town. Or, you know, let's just get together. We're going to talk about some, some ways to get out of this situation. We can just talk. I'll listen to you. And that is evidence that that person cares passionately. Well, the same thing is true for Jesus. A God who gets involved personally is a God who cares passionately, right? So think about it. God creates this beautiful, wonderful world. There's beauty, there's love, there's faithfulness, and then sin and brokenness come into the world, and everything gets messed up. And, 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 there's, and it's just horrific. And, and this fellowship that we have with God is broken, and, and, and the beauty of creation is broken. There's sin, there's mess, there's twisted carnage everywhere. And this is a part of us and our lives, our nature and the world around us. We can't escape it. God sends beauty and we respond with ugliness and disdain for him. God sends love and we respond with apathy. God sends faithfulness and we respond with faithlessness. And so God wants to remedy the situation. He wants to be back in relationship with his people. He wants to restore everything to how it was originally intended to be with this beauty and love and faithfulness. And so he sends messengers and to no avail. He sends prophets. That doesn't really work out. He sends judges and he sends kings. And finally he's like, I'm just going to come myself. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. It's him coming to us personally. Dorothy Sayers, one of the first women who went to Oxford University, and she was a writer of detective fiction. And so in one of her stories, uh, there's this character named Peter. And about midway through the story, something really weird happens. All of a sudden, this new character pops up named Harriet, and Harriet is one of the, in the story is one of the first women who went to Oxford University. She's a writer of detective fiction. That's weird. And so she meets this person, Peter, who's really struggling, and, and, and he's lonely. And so, she, and so this Harriet in the story comes alongside him and kind of loves him and helps him solve detective mysteries. And you think, what in the world is going on here? This person in the story, Harriet, sounds a lot like Dorothy Sayers, who... You know, Oxford, detective fiction. You know, wait a second. As she's writing her own story, she sees this character that she has created is lonely, needs someone to come alongside of him and help him. And so she writes herself into her own story. She wrote her own character, gave him a different name, into their own story to come alongside Peter to help him and to redeem him. And that is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. He has written himself into the story of human history and our lives to come alongside us and redeem us. Because a God who gets involved personally is a God who cares passionately. He endured it all for you. And so in your bulletins, there is uh, this picture. Now, you will have seen this if you got a bulletin on the way in. And if you didn't, you can get one on the welcome desk on the way out. And for those people watching online, uh, if you go to the resources page where you can access the YouTube live stream, there's a download, you can get this. Now, the story with this is it's, it's, it's a picture of the face of Jesus. And so I was given this uh, with something else as a gift for something I had done back when I was in seminary. But this artist was commissioned. I don't know their name or else I would give them credit. This artist was commissioned to, to, write, uh, to, to do a work 
uh, on the love of God. And so what they came up with is this is a picture of Jesus. He's hanging on the cross, and this is supposed to represent both his humanity and his divinity. Humanity and divinity while on the cross. And this is uh, what the quote uh, says. The work creates the tension between Jesus suffering as flesh and Jesus the divine one accustomed to and longing for the bliss and praise of heaven. The drama of these uh, combined realities speaks to the nature of the incarnation and the depth of God's love. Really interesting work of art. Now, you'll notice there's a thought bubble here in, in the mind of Jesus. Now, originally the artist had put in the names of the biblical archangels, but I've blanked that out. Because here's what I want to encourage you to do. I encourage you to take this home. I encourage you to write your own name in that bubble as a reminder that as Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Mary was suffering on the cross and during this, he was thinking of you. Who's thinking of you? You take it, put it in your Bible, your nightstand, on your fridge, whatever. And maybe you want to write your name. Maybe you also want to write in that also the names of some people who are really close to you, you know, whatever you, you want to do. But write your own name in there as a reminder that as Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, is hanging on the cross, he endured it all for you, that he was thinking of you. Did you know that you are that special? Do you know that you are that valuable? Did you know that you are that beloved by God himself. A God who gets involved personally is a God who cares passionately. Jesus, Yeshua, is God come to us in human form and he endured it all because he loves you. Amen.